Good morning again. It's my privilege to be here to serve alongside you and, and to serve you this morning, the body, with the Word of God. And so we're thankful that you've joined us and thankful for the prayer this morning. Thank you, Jeff, and leading that. Uh, there's a number of preachers out today, so continue to pray for that as the Word's preached this morning, as Chris is candidating down at Hillsboro Baptist, First Baptist, and uh, wisdom for them, and for Zach as he's just filling the pulpit for our church up in West Seattle. And and for me this morning, so a lot of things to be thankful for in God's goodness for us as a church. This morning we're continuing our series in the book of Nehemiah chapter 8, so as you're turning there, I'm going <clears> to <throat> share a, just a brief story. In 1494, William Tyndale was born in a small village near Dursey, England. I've mentioned him before in the past. He was a very blessed man with a special ability to learn languages. He could at one point in his adult life, speak eight languages fluently. Uh, but, but soon his passion would be the New Testament Greek language. And in those days when he was, was being trained, men starting to become priests needed to ask the bishop for permission to read or even translate any part of the Bible, and permission was rarely given. Tyndale was one of the few who dared to study the Scriptures in secret, without permission. And at first he only studied it as he did other books, He thought of it as kind of a religious textbook to kind of dive into. But soon, as he read God's Word, and as you imagine, he began to see that the Bible was much different. And the Holy Spirit began to work in his heart, and he became to believe that the Bible was, in fact, God's Word given to man. One day, when Tyndale was talking with a priest, the the priest remarked and said, I believe it would be better to be without God's law than to be without the Pope's law. This infuriated Tyndale, and he said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spares my life, I will make it so in England that the plowboys, the farm workers, will know more of the Bible than many of the priests do now. Tyndale knew that if the people were going to grow and understand the problems with the Roman Catholic Church, they needed the Bible read to them, explained to them, and in their own language. They didn't have the Bible available to them. It was only available in Latin, and very few could read the Bible in Latin. Many of the priests didn't even know Latin. Go ahead and think through that. You can imagine their services as they would stumble their way reading Latin and having no idea what it said. So if the people were going to understand God's Word, they needed it in their language. And so Tyndale would set out to translate the Bible in the language of the people. What would you do if you didn't have a Bible that was in your own language that you could understand? Have you ever thought much about that? I mean, we are surrounded by the Bible everywhere. We are drowning in the availability of the Word. While you sit here, connected to a 5G network, you can download the Bible in a matter of 15 seconds and have the Bible in 20 to 30 translations. We are drowning in availability, and yet it seems like we are living in a biblical famine. People seem to trust everything else except the Bible. How eager are you to hear and read God's Word? You know, you're here this morning. Praise the Lord. You're off to a fantastic start to start the week but we've been reminded already in this time this morning of the power of God's word 
and it's changing us and bringing us really lasting joy. So this morning, we want to look at Nehemiah 8 because in it we see the power and the effect and the importance of God's word. So here's the main idea. Here's the main thrust uh, from the chapter and from the message this morning. God's word forms God's people and God's joy is their strength. So again, if you get anything from the message, get this. And then two points to walk through and bring the book and rejoice in the Lord. As we said last week in chapter 7, the, the wall was merely the first step in rebuilding of a nation here. And worship was always the goal for Nehemiah. It may seem like the, he was just coming as a, as a contractor to build this wall, but really he had ulterior motives of what this wall would signify. And he knew that he could do only a portion of this work to reform God's people. He, he needed others to come in and to lead and to serve, and we will hear of Ezra. First time we hear of him, really, in, in any depth, coming onto the scene to lead God's people. Up to this point, Nehemiah had been writing in a first person, but this chapter really changes it, changes the, the mode in which we understand the, the rest of the book, and we'll read it. But in chapter 8, we will see the importance of God's word, the law of God. So chapter 8, verse 1, we're going to kind of walk through this passage uh, this morning, Lord willing. So start in verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and all those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra stood, Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for this purpose. And beside him stood Manathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padadiah, and Mishil, and Malachiah, and Hashem, and Hashbandiah, and Zechariah, and Meshem on his left hand. I don't know why some of you haven't named your kids these names yet. You know, it's one thing to announce a meeting. It's another thing for people to actually come to it. Uh, it seems as we, we dive into this chapter that there was a meeting that was planned beforehand. Otherwise, these things wouldn't have been ready. So the platform stage was built, ready to hold Ezra and, and this list of, of fabulous names of people. And the question is, will they be ready to listen? Or are they ready to come? And as we, we read, as you find out right away, oh, they're ready. They're asking for the book. They're the ones that ask for the book of the law of Moses. And throughout Christian history, one of the main characteristics of a genuine revival has been the sovereign initiative of God giving men and women a longing for spiritual things. This wasn't Nehemiah or Ezra who asked, but it was the people, it was the congregation and friends, if the Bible is going to continue to be preached and taught in this church and the future churches in their area, it would need to be desired by the congregation. Yes, leaders have a responsibility. Don't get me wrong, okay? Leaders have the desire to do this. 
but the congregation, the people, are the voice in which we hear so loudly in this chapter. Perhaps part of the reason is leadership in churches today that have forsake the word, but there's so many congregations that are just fine with that. We don't find that in Nehemiah 8. The congregation is saying, bring the book, bring the law. They take the initiative of asking Ezra to read the book of the law, which shows for us they had a hunger for the word of God. And they show their hunger by not just saying, hey, bring it and we'll just lounge and sit back while you read. They stood and listened to God's word a long time. Nehemiah says, or at this point, who's writing? He says, early morning till midday. Most likely it's around four to six hours standing to listen to God's word. And the desire to learn God's law was conscious and pervasive and strong. And the sense that this was going to be a wonderful day ran through the whole gathering as they were there, as they sacrificed. And what we learn here is God's people love to hear God's word. Look again at verse 3. And all the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. That's a great sentence. They were absorbed in listening to the word of God. It takes work to listen to the Bible. Right? Is there, is there an amen in that? If you've ever tried to read through the Bible through the year and at 7 a.m., it takes work that early to read and listen to the Word. Are we as attentive to the Word as they are? You know, I want to encourage you, friends, to, to listen attentively when the Word is read. Each Sunday morning, we begin our service with, with a call to worship, and we talk through some, some family business, but then we read a passage of Scripture, and we should, we should open our, our hearts and minds to be attentive to the Word. And then the Word is read in the Scripture, in the sermon time, and we should listen attentively, absorbing, as we desire to honor the Lord. So, so listen to, to glorify and honor Him, but listen for your own soul's sake, friends. You know, we're very deliberate. We, we, we seek to, to be very picky about the, the texts that are to be read in, in the sermon series. And you should be, as a congregation, deliberate in listening and digesting God's word, just as much as the people are seen here. We should be a congregation of, of people who are absorbed in God's word. But I want to mention a couple points, just some application here. Just because they listen to the word for hours doesn't mean that we're going to do that every week. No amens there? Yeah, you don't want to say that a lot. Just because this happened in this day doesn't mean that now we're going to include a four to five hour reading of the word every week, okay? This passage is descriptive, not prescriptive. And just because the people stood to listen to the word read doesn't necessarily mean that we will stand every week, okay? That's descriptive, not prescriptive. Now, both, now both these things are, are good and right, and there might come time in our congregation, in our time as a church family, where we might need to do these things. But I want you to understand, more importantly, that, that these things describe, really, the importance of the Word, and it showed their desire to hear the Word and to be focused on the Word. That's what we should key in on. That's the posture of the people, and that should be the posture of us as a New Testament Christian in the church today. So, this passage is a description. 
And we, we want to learn from this passage. And what we should do here is, is understanding the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the people, giving them an interest in, in God's word, an interest in, in God, a concern for holy things, and, and a desire to, to sit and, well, really stand under God's word and to absorb it into their life. They, they wanted to hear. And that's what we should take and apply to our lives. Well, then verse 5 Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above the people, all the people, and he opened it and all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen and amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And also Jeshua, Bani, and Sherebiah, and Jamin, Akub, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Masiah, Keltiah, Aziah, Josabad, Hanan, Pelai and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. First thing we notice here is the, the word is lifted high. It, it, it's, it's high up in the service, just practically. Ezra was above the people, not because he was better than the people, but because the word should have a lofty place in, in their lives. They wanted him to be higher than the people as the word of God was being read. This wasn't just for volume, although that would have been very helpful, but it was for people to understand that the word of God should be exalted. I've been through more churches than I can count in Europe, and I would encourage you to do so, uh, to take a trip there and, and to see it. But throughout all of these older churches, old churches that are older than our country, most thing in common in most of these churches is there's an elevated pulpit that is significantly higher than the people. I remember one in particular, the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, where Martin Luther preached. The pulpit there was raised about 15 feet in the air with a spiral staircase leading up to it. This was done on purpose. This was, this was I believe, in some ways taken from what we read here in Nehemiah chapter 8. Not for looks, although it was very beautiful, but was to understand, the people understanding that the word is to be lifted up, especially in the context of what Luther was facing in the Reformation, right? If all the priests and the people didn't have the word in their, in their own tongue, if they didn't understand the word, then the word was very much brought down. And, and, and Luther and those that were building the churches wanted to lift the word up so that people could see it. So this was understanding for the people, but I also think the congregation would be benefited, but the preacher would be benefited because every time the preacher would go up those stairs, he would be reminded that this is no ordinary task. This is not just something to check off the list. He was about to read and then preach God's word, and it was not to be taken lightly. That's why our desire is to have an elevated platform here, to have a pulpit. It's very uh, deliberate in that way for us as a church, so that you understand that the Word of God is lifted up. And then the people respond. The vocal amens were combined with raising their hands, which would show their dependence on the Word. Their bowing of heads and even some with their faces to the ground was a display of worship for them. And, and the picture here is that we need to have dependence on the word, on God, because it's, it's his word, and we worship him. They wanted to show their reverence and submission to God 
for allowing the Word of God to be preserved this whole time and now to be brought before them and read. See, what they're showing here is they're holding the Word high because it's God's Word to them. In the meeting, we find out that there's, the people made no distinction between the reading and exposition of Scripture and then offering of worship and singing. See, exposition and adoration belong together, each flowing into each other. For some today, it's very easy that we, we think of worship as just, as, as just singing. And yet, we can adore our God just as easily through the faithful exposition and reading of his word given on a Sunday morning. Lively, relevant, biblical exposition should promote a genuine adoration of God just as much as lively singing. So when we get to the sermon, we need to understand that we're still worshiping. We're still worshiping God just as much as we were earlier when we were singing. From beginning to end, our services are meant to worship God. And then we read about the, the Levites. They helped the people to understand the law. They read from the book, the law of God, clearly, and they gave sense so that the people understood the reading, he says. Some of this work that they would have done would have been some translation work, probably, since the law was, was in Hebrew and the people had returned from Babylon, now spoke Aramaic, a dialect of Hebrew. But, but I also believe it's not just translation work. It's, it's really an exposition. It's, a, it's an unfolding, an unpackaging of what the Word is saying. The Levites were there to help serve the people so that they could understand God's word. They gave meaning to the text so that their listeners would see what law-keeping to the Lord would mean for them in practice for their life. Which means if you ever desired to teach or preach God's word, you haven't preached until you've applied God's word. It's not a sermon until you've taken God's word and explained it and applied it to people in their life. And expository preaching, I believe, is the, is the best way in which Christians grow. We desire to, to be a church that, that preaches expository every week. Uh, the regular diet, if you're new to our church, is to, is to choose a book of the Bible and to make our way through it, giving meaning and giving sense to the text so that the people uh, listening can understand it and apply it to their life. Now, there is a place for topical sermons and that will happen here once in a while in our church, but that's usually not the normal practice. We, we want the word to lead us, and, and as preachers, we want to give meaning to the text. So if you've heard this term, expository preaching, many of you probably have. Raise your hand if you've heard this term. All right, so most of you have, all right? Here's a definition. Expository preaching is that the point of the text is the point of the sermon. The point of the text is the point of the sermon. Some of you have probably been taught at some point in your life that expository preaching is preaching verse by verse. Anyone want to acknowledge that? that that's partly true, sure. But that's not what expository preaching really is. Is that when we come to the Bible, we let the Bible tell us this is the point. This is the point. So you should be able to come home at the end of the day and think, did Jeff give me the point of the text? or whoever was preaching. Expository preaching is not just preaching verse by verse. It's, it's walking through what the point of that chapter or the section or wherever we're going through is the point of the sermon then. So you can do this. We can have expository preaching in a topical sermon as long as 
the point of the text is the point of the sermon. The problem we get into, and, and some other churches do, uh, and I have in the past, is that we have so many passages, it's hard to, to navigate that and get them all succinctly together. So we, wanted, we desire to have expository preaching. And expository preaching is what? Yeah, I'm going to test you right now. What is it? Look at it. You guys are all pros now, right? This is super helpful because when people come to visit and they, you know, you get to know them and they say, yes, you know, I, I enjoy the preaching. You say, it's expository preaching. And then you can explain what that is. And that will serve you, friends, as you're reading the word. So as Len dives into the word on Saturday morning with the men, men, your job is to come here and go, all right, I think this is the point of the text. So is Jeff going to preach or Chris going to preach the point of the text? And if not, you come and say, hey, Jeff, I love you. How did you get to that point? And we can have a great dialogue about that. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I've missed it. And you've been able to, to give insight. But I think it's super helpful. And I think in some ways, this is what the Levites were doing in some way, trying to give an understanding and meaning to the text that was being read to God's people. Here's what... Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones had to say about the importance of preaching, and he's written a whole book on this, if you're curious. He said, what it is that always heralds the dawn of a reformation or a revival, it's renewed preaching. Not only a new interest in preaching, but a new kind of preaching. A revival of true preaching has always heralded these great movements in the history of the church. And of course, when the Reformation and the Revival come, they've always led to great and notable periods of greatest preaching that the church has ever known. As that was true in the beginning as described in the book of Acts, it was also after the Protestant Reformation. Luther, Calvin, Knox, Latimer, Ridley, all these men were great preachers. And so we are a Bible church unashamed because we seek to live our lives as revealed by the Bible. But you need to understand we don't worship the Bible. We adore and worship the God of the Bible. That's the main thrust. So this first point is, is the people asking for the book. Now as the book is read, we will find the reaction and, and then the hope that they have here. So point number two is to rejoice in the Lord. Look at verse nine though. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and, make, and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. What we find out here is that the word cut deep like a living sword to the hearts of the audience that heard it, like Hebrews 4 tells us. The tears of grief lead them to repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. A 17th century preacher, William Bridge, would give a biblical illustration popular among reformers and Puritans, and he would call the Bible a looking glass, a mirror, and using a mirror, we would see three things, he says. He says that you'd see the material glass, 
the reflection of our own image and the things around us in the room. And as we see the glass itself, we're reminded that Scripture is God's testimony to his own nature. But then as we look at the glass, as we look at the mirror, you see yourself. And you see your dirty face. Right, that's the first thing you do in the morning, Lord willing. Right? After you've showered and you're ready to go to church, you look in the mirror. Right? To make sure you see yourself. But not only that, you see other things, other creatures in the room with you. You have to see other emptiness in life. And without the mirror, we would have no vision for ourselves. So the people are weeping here because they're hearing the word read, and they see God, and they see themselves and others, and their lifestyle has not matched what God's word has commanded. See, as the law was read and explained to the people, it was as if to them that God was speaking directly to them and reading their hearts. And they saw themselves as sinners, as lawbreakers, more concerned with themselves than pleasing God. Corporate conviction of sin, the deep awareness and Sensitivity to sin is a genuine mark of revival. They experience guilt. Not just the feeling of guilt, but the full realization that their sin has put them under God's judgment. And, and the guilt that they experience as they hear God's word read to them and explained to them, they begin to weep. They're recognizing that there's a divide between the way that they have been living and their commitment to obey God's word. But the leaders here instruct them not not to stay in their mourning, but to rejoice. God has convicted us of our sin, but he doesn't want us to stay in our sin. The leaders want to celebrate the fact that God has about and is about to remove the people's sin. They're, they're in the seventh month, which is the time of year of the Day of Atonement, the time when the priests would enter into the temple and make sacrifices for the sins of the people, and that day is coming. And the weeping will be postponed. The weeping will come, but it'll be postponed until the festival of booths that we'll get to in this chapter. And then we'll see, Lord willing, in two weeks, chapter 9 as the people will need to deal with the conviction of sin. They are told, though, in this this section right here, not to grieve because he says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. What does the joy of the Lord mean? This phrase refers to Yahweh's joy, the Yahweh's good pleasure. And what has Yahweh's good pleasure been with his people right now? It's to move in the hearts of Cyrus and King Art to allow the people to come back and rebuild the temple, you see in Ezra, and then rebuild the walls and then repopulate the city. See, Yahweh's good pleasure has been for his people all along, restoring them to the land and the city that they would come and worship him. And what is their strength? It's the stronghold of the Lord his protection, his provision of them. So how do we apply these verses here to us? Here's a few different ways. See, the joy of the Lord for us is knowing that we're loved by God. Knowing that we are loved and cherished will bring joy 
to your hearts, friends. God has loved his people before the foundation of the world. Do you believe me when I tell you that God the Father takes joy in those who put their faith in Jesus Christ? Do you believe me when I tell you, Christian, that God is pleased with you, not because you do all the right things, because we know we don't, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross? Christian, you don't have to do anything to earn his love. There's nothing you could do. He has done it all. And God's love for us never changes. God never changes. We are constantly changing. But God never changes. And his love for us is all because of Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross. But secondly, the joy of the Lord is also knowing that we have fellowship with this God. He doesn't just love us from afar, but we have a relationship with him. And there's a profound sense that as Christians in this world, more than anyone else, we're the ones who really can know and understand joy because of Jesus Christ, because of our relationship with him. And we can have fulfillment and purpose in our life. The joy of the Lord also comes to us from an understanding of God's providence for us. See, as, as God's people stood before the water gate and they could look back as they heard God's word led over their lives, they, they could remember of all the ways that God had provided for them every step of the way. And that's just as important for us today, Christian. Romans 8, 28 and 29, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. He has always provided for us, and God wants us to make us more like Jesus Christ. And, And the way in which this happens and how God conforms us is most likely through suffering and his providence in the midst. We will grow most in the joy of the Lord when we're forced to rely on him instead of anything else in this world. And last, the joy of the Lord is also found in looking towards the future. The best is yet to come, friends. Have you forgotten that Jesus is coming back. His providence in our lives is always purposeful and the promise that we have has not been fully realized. The best for the Christian is yet to come. C.S. Lewis writes for us, he says, the human soul was made to enjoy some object that is never fully given, nay, cannot even be imagined as given in our present mode of subjective spatio-temporal existence. And what he means here is that we won't fully appreciate God and experience full joy until we see him face to face. And he's coming back for us. And knowing this, being convinced of this, gives us hope and joy for today. Where is your joy found right now? 
Is it in the start of a new NFL season? They might win, friends. And that might bring a little bit of joy, honestly. There's nothing wrong with that. But that fades, right? I mean, I have no idea, but you know, it fades. You think of what is the joy, what is bringing joy to you in your life right now? Is it, is it a good work, like a position that's really like you're just in a groove in your career field, and it's just a lot of joy? Praise the Lord. But is that it? Is it in the, in, in the age where your kids are at right now, or, or you're, they're out of the home and there's just a lot of joy? Praise the Lord for that. Is that it? I mean, there's a lot of things to have happiness and joy in this world, but will that sustain you? See, our our joy that he's talking about here is not to be found in temporal, material possessions or even our earthly relationships, but it's to be in the Lord. Our joy should be found in the knowledge of who God is and what he's done for us and what he continues to give us. Friend, are you stuck in guilt and shame over your sin? Guilt and shame should only lead us to God. But we should never live there. See, the root of spiritual revival is the realization of God's holiness and goodness and mercy and the perversity and shamefulness and offensiveness of our sin as we see ourselves in light of who God is. And so grief for sin comes, but there's joy in God's forgiveness in the assurance of his love. They're not divorced from each other. See, the God who, who convicts us of sin is the God of mercy who saves. And repenting of sin and turning from it and turning to him and forgiveness are two sides of the same coin. God's, God's desire for you is not to bring you through and have just conviction and that you just live there for the next 10, 20 years. That's not his hope for you, friends. It's to find hope and forgiveness in Jesus Christ alone. And so where are you at spiritually today, friends? Perhaps today is the first time in a long time that you made it to church. Friends, I am glad you're here. And you're always welcome here. But are you trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation? Are you finding your hope in him? Or have you convinced yourself that, that you're not good enough? Or you need to do more to earn his love? You have to be more obedient. You have to know more of the Bible you have to be more faithful and then perhaps God may look at you and forgive you. Friends, that is a lie. Salvation only comes by our admission of sin and us running to Jesus to find hope in him through the sacrifice on the cross. And as Christians, when we sin, we continue to do the same thing. We run to him for forgiveness and remind ourselves of our faith and trust in him. We trust in Jesus. That's the only way. And we trust in him because he is 
the living water that satisfies the thirst that we have in our life. Well, the passage ends here talking about a festival. Look at verse 13. On the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found in it, written in the law, that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, uh, palm, excuse me, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square of the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths, for from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. See, there's strength here for God's people in remembering God's faithfulness to them. So the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles is also called, was a a week-long festival for the people of God. And the point of this was to, to point back to the days when Israel experienced God's faithfulness as they were in the wilderness. It was a reminder of all the grumbling that God had dealt with over time and how gracious he was to God's people. The festival was a celebration, really, of looking back of God's goodness to them. And it was celebrated normally at the end of the yearly harvest as a way to remember God's faithfulness in supplying all that they need. And so they were to build booths, as you read here, or tabernacles out of branches. It was a reminder of this, this time when they lived in tents, right, in the 40-year journey. But in the midst of the destruction of Jerusalem and now the rebuilding, what what he says here essentially is they had forgotten. They had forgotten about this festival. They were quite human. And the more abundance of the people had received from God, the Lord, the more thankless the celebration became, the more suffering that they would experience, the, the more that God was pushed out until this festival essentially was just ignored. It was pushed out of their calendar. And so the heads of households here, we find out, come to gather together in verse 13, and they have an in-depth Bible study. And they come to realize that they needed to obey God's word, that they had neglected to do this, and they needed to celebrate the feast together. So that's what they do. They celebrate for seven days, and on the eighth day was a solemn assembly. Now we have some insight into this, this feast and what it means. If you remember in the Gospel of John, a number of years ago, we went through that. We've, we've tiptoed in the book again the last few years, but we, we read this passage this morning from John 1. And if you remember in John 1, it says that clearly that Jesus came to dwell with us. And then in the first seven chapters of John, the word water is repeated 22 times. Also this allusion to water in the narratives of John the Baptist and Jesus walking on the sea. The most frequent used word in John chapter 4, if you remember that chapter, is Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman, is is living water. And and he's going to provide true worshipers. And so why is this significant? Well, sometime in the history after the exile, additional ritual was added to this feast, to the Feast of Booths. One that was not required, but one that was done nonetheless by the people. 
And the ritual hinted at Zechariah 14 involved drawing water from the pool of Siloam and carrying it through the city to be poured out at the temple altar. It was done every day except for the eighth day. And it was to recall how God had enabled Moses to draw water from the rock in the wilderness to satisfy God's people. And so in John, if you jump from chapter 4 to chapter 7, we find that that Jesus was going to go down and his brothers, just read it, it's a great chapter, brothers warn him, you know, hey, if you're so popular, you should go down there. And then uh, Jesus secretly comes in to the Feast of Tabernacles and he discovers a debate that's happening over his identity. But in the middle of the feast, Jesus then opens up and and teaches publicly in the temple. And and it says that the people begin to believe, but the religious leaders reject and seek to arrest him. But on the last day of the feast, after the seven days, Jesus stands and he cries out and declares that he is the fulfillment of the tabernacles, the fulfillment of the booths. See, the last day, remember I just said that there's no water poured out, and he stands out, stands up and cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And see, the point of all this, and what Jesus is saying is this, this ritual, all of this was to point forward to Jesus, the true fulfillment of this festival. The point of of what we read here in Ezra 8 of the Feast of Booths was there to remind God's people what always directing the eyesight forward. It's as if if Nehemiah, this is football, okay, is throwing a pass in Nehemiah 8 and it's not caught to John 7. That's a long pass. And Jesus applies it for him. I am the fulfillment. You have longed to be satisfied. And in me, you will find satisfaction, Jesus says. And though we live in tents now, as Paul says to us, right, our bodies are mere tents. We have a permanent home with the Father. See, the greatest threat to our spiritual lives as Christians is to find our satisfaction in something else other than Jesus Christ. And, and to build our own cisterns, to hold our own water instead of relying on him as the all-satisfying water, the never-ending, refreshing water. See, we have something in common this morning. We all came thirsty because we all need more of Christ. But in Christ, we can be fully refreshed, given everything we need. Christ is the fulfillment of the tabernacle, of the Feast of Tabernacles. He is the Word, the promise of the Father. He is our true joy, and He is our peace. And I pray that we would take God's Word home with us this week, Nehemiah 8, and apply it to our life and remind ourselves of the true fulfillment in Jesus Christ and what He's brought for us, all because of the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. God, we thank you for people like William Tyndale who saw the need to have the word translated and in the the language of the people so that we can read and understand your word. We thank you for the example of the people here in Nehemiah 8 who long for the word. God, I thank you for the people 
now. Christians who have been saved by you and raised in the church and have now left to go to nations and countries and spend their days and their hours translating your word for people to understand, for the main purpose for them to understand who you are and what you've done in in sending Jesus Christ for us. So we thank you that we have your word. We thank you here that we can rely on it and learn from it and rejoice in it. And we confess that we have not always prized your word. And we've not always longed to read it as we should. And yet you're gracious and faithful to us. So we pray that you would give us strength to be people of your word this week. Give us hope and peace through Jesus Christ. Help us to find our satisfaction in him alone. And may you receive all the honor and glory through our lives. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.